This is the Blacklist Podcast, and as always, I'm your host, Franklin Leonard, founder and CEO of The Blacklist, joined, as usual, by... Kate Hagan, Director of Community at The Blacklist. And another great conversation today with a writer-director whose film set the world on fire last year and, in my opinion, was robbed for all kinds of Academy Awards. That's right, writer-director of The Farewell, Miss Lulu Wong. It's a great conversation with Lulu. We're going to talk about The Farewell's extremely interesting journey to the screen. If you've never heard it before, you'll get to hear Lulu tell it here. We're going to talk about the challenges of releasing a movie like The Farewell into the indie film marketplace, including challenges when you've made a movie that's not in English, and what it's like when you have to weigh competing offers from streaming services and theatrical distribution companies. And we're going to talk about what's next for Lulu, which is very exciting. It's a wonderful conversation. In short, Lulu's dope. The conversation's dope. So without further ado, here's me and Kate and Lulu Wong. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. So, Lulu, we start all of these interviews the same way, which is to ask people what was the first movie they saw in a theater. And not just, like, the movie, but, like, set the scene for us. How young were you? What movie was it? Like, do you have any memory of the first time you were in a movie theater? I honestly don't. I have this weird thing because my family and I immigrated from China when I was six years old. My memory around the time I was switching languages is very fuzzy. Because I think that language is how you see the world, how you interpret the world. And so when I moved to the States at six years old, I only spoke Chinese. And then when I started learning English, I learned very quickly, but I almost entirely lost Chinese. Right. And so I, and also my parents didn't take me to the movies when I was a kid. So I, I have a really hard time like thinking of like the first time I was actually in a movie theater, the first movie I saw, and I'm sure it was with friends. And I want to say that it was probably when I was in middle school, when I was like old enough to actually go out with friends. Like sleep, like sleepover vibes. Like we're like we're all getting together as a group of middle school friends, and like we go to a movie, then come back and like hang out, or like exactly, or like we like go to a movie and and go to like Pizza Hut, you know, right. like like for somebody's birthday. Oh, you know what? I do remember. I don't. I can't say for sure this was the first movie that I went to, but I think that my, one of my first memories is that movie. Was it called Bed of Roses? Hold on, I'm looking it up. With Christian Slater and Mary Stuart Masterson. Yes. Yeah, I was like, Kate definitely knows this movie. Yeah. Yes, because I, you know, because I remember that I had a crush on a boy and I remember really, really, really wanting to go and see it with him and it didn't happen. Um, so I went to see it with friends. So yeah, it was, I remember that movie and I remember seeing Titanic in the movie theater. I was going to say, how many times did you see it in the theater? Because I feel like that was sort of, that was the mark of, it was both why the movie was successful, but like literally everyone I knew of a certain age, it was not only have you seen it, but I've seen it seven times in the theater. I've seen it 12 times. I think my sister hit 10 and then tapped out. Yeah, I think I did like three times. I think safely I can say I went at least three times. But yeah, I was not like a young cinephile, you know. No one ever handed me a Super 8 camera. No one ever said, here here are the art house theaters. The other thing I'm leaving out, though, is that I actually saw um, 
I didn't see it. I was running around the student union, but my parents were seeing these Chinese movies when my father went to the University of Miami. And so they would sometimes do these screenings for the international students. And so they, I remember them playing Zhang Yimou's uh, Raise the Red Lantern. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, and I was a, a kid and running around and my parents were like, this is inappropriate for you to watch. Go away. <laughs> so please go run around the student union. We're going to watch, stay and watch the movie. Wait, but were they were they movie people? So they were clearly going to these these screenings. Was it morally about like connecting back to home, or were they also like, oh, we're this is a really good movie by a really good filmmaker, so we're going to go see it? Uh, no, I think it was like that's what was available. The activities were pretty limited, um, and when they just moved to the U.S., it, it was just about like finding things to do with friends. Uh, in a language that was easy for my mom uh, to understand uh, because she's a lot better now. I mean, she can watch movies and follow along. But when she first moved here and she was still learning English, it was really tough for her to watch anything in English. And my dad would always have to be there translating for her. So I think this was just a way to get out of the house, uh, hang out with other Chinese students. And then I had my friends that I would run around with. But I saw Raise the Red Lantern in a world cinema class in college. And I was like, oh, that's what my parents were watching. I mean, because in a way it was like, I never went to go see it because my, because I just have this memory of like, that's, that's what my parents watch. That's like their thing. And right. they would tell me like not to watch it. It was inappropriate. I remember seeing like a little bit of it and being sort of traumatized and they were like, all right, just go away. So I never watched it on my own. (laughs) And Bed of Roses was, was, were were your movies. Those were, those were your people's things. Yeah. During this time, is there a sort of like particular movie that catalyzes you from being like, I like movies to I love movies and this is the thing I want to do? Well, I started to say I love movies, not just in college, which is when I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker, but we would watch things like Sound of Music, which is, you know, the the kind of stories that I would connect with on a, you know, it felt both personal and epic at the same time. My mom was really into musicals. We watched like Singing in the Rain. We watched Fiddler on the Roof. And then I started to really love movies. One summer, I was in China visiting one of my, uh, both of my grandmothers, but one of my grandmother's houses, she had Turner Movie Classics. It was like one of the only channels in English. And so it was the only thing for me to watch because I could, at that point, I was only really speaking English. So that's what I watched the entire summer was just all of these like old black and white movies and a lot of screwball comedies. So that's when I started to really love films on my own terms. But then in college, I took a feminist film theory class and I watched The Piano, Piano Teacher, Secretary, a lot of films about female desire. And so, you know, I suddenly saw that films could explore a much more intimate side of life. And, um, and particularly since, you know, like a lot of films I've seen in the past were from the male point of view, I think really like seeing all of these films at once from the female perspective, exploring desire made me much more interested in becoming a filmmaker. But and before that, you were like you were on a path to being a musician, if I if the internet is to be believed. Well, not really. I mean, I was classically trained as a pianist, but I knew that I did not want to be a concert pianist professionally. So yet, like it was this complicated thing where I couldn't give it up because my parents made me feel so guilty about how much they'd sacrificed in order for me to take the lessons. And they bought me this piano and I'd been playing and practicing since I was four years old. So you do anything for that long and you just think it would be a real shame to give it up. But at the same time, I didn't know what I would do with it because I wasn't on the path to practicing seven hours a day. So the thing I heard all the time from my piano teachers were like, you're so good for somebody who barely practices. Imagine what you could do if you actually practiced. (laughs) See, pro tip, my parents tried to do that with violin. The trick is to not be good at it. Then you can quit and no one cares. They're just like, yeah, that's probably better for everybody. If you just like put the violin down. (laughs) 
conversations like with your parents, given that around the time when you start sort of transitioning to like, I think I want to make movies? How did those conversations go? I think the conversation actually went pretty well because the thing that my mom used to always say to me was she would call me a dilettante and she would say, you know, you're pretty good at everything that you pick up and you like to dabble in a little bit of everything, but you're never going to be a master of anything, which means that your whole life, you're just going to be eating side dishes. <laughs> you're not going to have a main damn. dish. <laughs> like what's your entree, right? That, that like, is, have all that these appetizers. is brutal. Um, <laughs> and I feel a little triggered because I definitely had a conversation with my dad that was dangerously similar. <laughs> I think anybody yeah. in the arts has had that moment with their parents where they're like, are yeah. you really sure? <laughs> I, I do love the side dish entree uh, metaphor, though. <laughs> that is particularly brutal. At what stage yeah. was this? Was, was this when you were like, okay, this is what I want to do? Or was this like as you were considering it? No, this was all my life before I discovered film. Um, Got it. Okay. It, so this because- was just like, oh, you're good at a lot of things. You need to choose one and commit. Yeah, because, you know, in college, I like I took dance and I I was a a swing dance instructor for a while during college, just like not even getting paid. Just that that was a thing I did for fun. And then I took art classes throughout high school. And then I also did some musical theater when I was in middle school. So and then I wrote all my life I had been writing. And so my mother's a writer. So I, I always thought I would write in some way or be a storyteller of some kind. And that's why my mom said, you know, like you're pretty decent at everything, but are you ever going to master anything? Are you going to make a career? Are you going to make a living? Or is this just going to be a bunch of hobbies? Are you just always going to be eating side dishes? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So then, you know, when I discovered filmmaking, that was the thing I could throw back at them. I could say like, look, I have my entree. This is my steak dinner. (laughs) What are you going to say? Like, you can't. This is what you've been like. (laughs) And not only... And not only that, the entree is composed of literally every side dish. It's music, it's art, it's writing. I I got it all. Exactly. I was like, so none of it has gone to waste, even though I'm not playing piano anymore. My music background really helps inform how I work with a composer, helps to inform the rhythm of editing, of even how I write. I think of like you know, dialogue uh, as a melody. And so, yeah, so that was the argument I made. And it was one that was difficult for them to argue, but th- but it was definitely like, well, are you sure? Are you sure? And I, I think that even if I wasn't sure, I <laughs> had to be like, I'm sure, because, uh, you know, just to stand up to them. But I was pretty sure. Like I when I discovered filmmaking as like a path, as a career, as something that a person could actually do. Like I'd never before that, for some reason, never thought of making movies as a career path because I guess I don't know any directors and hadn't really heard about the process of like, oh, that there is a person who writes a script and then there is a person who directs the actors. And yeah, I just didn't know any of that at all. So once I learned that, I said, I want to be a writer director. And, um, and that was it. And I just was so adamant about it that there was very little that my parents could do to talk me out of it. I want to go back to one other random biographical detail from your youth. Again, this is the internet tells me that you went to New World High School in Miami, which I sort Mm -hmm. of imagine is like the Miami version of fame. Uh, (laughs) Is that is that accurate? A little I mean, it's a lot less dramatic than that, I think. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, also I was in the music department, like the, you know, right. all the drama happened with the dancers, with the musical theater kids. Right. But so this is what I'm getting to. There are a lot of like sort of esteemed graduates of New World, among them Terrell McCraney, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Which, were you guys there at the same time? No, he was a few years uh, ahead of me. And again, different departments. Right. And so the departments were just completely separate. Like you were in the music department. There was no interaction with like the drama kids. It's like a no, track no. system. Well, there I don't know why was. I'm obsessed with performing arts high schools. I just think that as a world, they're so interesting. It, now that I think back on it, it was definitely very interesting. I think that, well, so we all would take regular classes together, you know, math, science, all the right. core classes. But then after lunch, you break off 
into your specific departments and they're all different buildings. So the, the music okay. department had its own building. A theater had its own floor. So I think that people tended, you know how in normal high school you have different cliques of people yeah. who hang out, like the football, the whatever, the math geeks. Well, we were split up by our departments. And so right. once in a while, like you would overlap and people would make friends with other people from other departments. And I did some musical theater during the summer. I was playing piano with a musical, like a a local theater. And uh, so that's how I met a lot of musical, I became friends with a lot of musical theater kids. And I think also because, like I said, I had a really complicated relationship with music and piano specifically. I wasn't in love with it. I wasn't doing it on my own terms that I found other ways to use piano to start to access other things that I loved, uh, like storytelling. And so it, it was really fun for me to go, you know, be able to participate in, in like a you know, musical, like a children's, yeah. you know, musical by using my piano skills. When you're writing now, how does music figure into your process? Are you making playlists for specific projects? Are you sort of making like more tone sort of mixes while you're working? Yeah, I think there's two different levels of it. One is the conscious level and one is the uh, subconscious level, right? So the uh, consciously, you know, I, I always make playlists. I listen to other soundtracks for inspiration. I start to think conceptually about how the music and sound design together ties in. I start to think about how music will tie in with the story. But then on this unconscious level, I am also just thinking in terms of the rhythm the melody of the dialogue. Like, is it a witty banter where they go back and forth? Or are there a lot of awkward pauses? Is it an entire scene where one character only says one thing? You know, like, I think that's storytelling, but it there's also something, I think it's inspired also by my musical background because soundscape is a, a really big part of film. So I and I also don't think of like music and sound separately. I, I think about ways in which like music and or sound can work uh, to enhance a particular scene. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs. United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. All right, we're going to back up to some of the, the sort of standard movie questions. Are there any films in the so-called cinematic canon that you just refuse to watch? Things where it's just like, nope, no interest, not doing it. Everybody else tells me to, but I'm good. I mean, I would watch anything, uh, I think. I think it just depends on who I'm with, right? So, like, for the longest time, I had never seen Star Wars. I'd seen, like, the newer ones that came out, but I hadn't right. seen the originals. Mm -hmm. Um 
but my friend organized a, a Star Wars screening, like a you know, like over the course of I think a week, we we watched like a bunch of them at the Jim Henson Theater. Somehow booked <laughs> that theater and invited a bunch of people, and so that was a really cool way to go back and watch it in order and experience it. But yeah, I don't think there's anything that I would say. There are certain films that I probably wouldn't watch again. Which are those, if you're willing to say? I probably shouldn't say. I mean, mostly things that are just like really <laughs> gruesome or really like horrifying. Um, I'm 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 very sensitive to like sounds and like like uh, sound noise pollution or or anything like really jarring um, mm-hmm. and violence, images of violence. So anything that's too gruesome like that, it's like I I will go watch it and I want to be in the know, but I'm watching <laughs> the entire time like this, you know, and I, and I, yeah, and I jump a lot. And so it's, it's hard, it, like, I probably wouldn't watch them again, just knowing how much gore is in it. So there, so there's not going to be like your horror movie at some point, it sounds like. I might, I actually really appreciate horror films, especially when they don't go towards the violence and the gore. Like I'm really interested in horror when it's the way that it uses suspense or builds tension. You know, I'm less interested in the jump scares. And so, and I I often look for ways to use horror thriller elements in my own films, even though they're not genre films. Uh, Like even in The Farewell, I I used um, inspiration from horror films because I think it's a really great way of like using the camera, using sound to create tension without plot. You know, you're building atmosphere. So that's why I watch a lot of genre, or not a lot, but I try to watch them even, but I try to get a sense of like how much gore is in it, how <laughs> much violence and how many jump scares. And I, t- and I tend to like the ones that are more atmospheric. Is there anything in particular that sort of inspired shooting on the farewell, like any sort of genre films particularly that you were thinking of as you're trying to build suspense in the farewell? Yeah, like a lot of them, uh, Rosemary's Baby, I think just in general, you know, like thinking about how a horror film creates the sense of there being a monster in the room without seeing the monster. And Mm -hmm. so I was thinking of the lie as a monster and because so much of the movie isn't based around plot and I wanted to make sure that people felt the tension and that it was still escalating. And so that was a question I kept asking of saying, well, I don't want to add more plot in there, but I also don't want people to feel like they're watching the same scene over and over and that there's no progress. And so that's when I as I was talking to a friend of mine who's, who is a genre filmmaker, that's when she said, well, this is why I love genre. This is how, you know, in a horror film, if you watch like camera movement, if you watch sound design or whatever it might be, ways in which you can create the sense that something is coming. So I'll, I'm going to use that as a pivot to talk about The Farewell so you had made a feature right out of college, right? Am I mistaken in that? Like you, like it was a small film, but like you had made something like right out of school that it sort of had been a calling card. Yes, I made a feature. It was not a small film. It was actually the same budget as the farewell. We made it. It was a very bizarre situation because I met a woman who produced the film, but also ended up financing the film entirely, and I had no idea that that was going to happen, and we ended up somehow casting Britt Marling and Jack Houston. And it was supposed to be like a $100,000, you know, micro kind of film. And it just became much bigger. And I, it was my film school, essentially. Like I had never, I had barely made any shorts before that. So I really used that opportunity as a way to learn the set, to learn, you know, how a film is put together and um, work with actors. And then after that movie, though, there was a gap between that and The Farewell. And 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 I, I just kind of want to talk about, like, how did the, the sort of the personal reality of the situation with your grandmother evolve? And then, I mean, look, I, I know you've told this story many times, but like that to the NPR piece to trying to get the movie made and the resistance to the movie in the way in which you wanted to tell it. 
Yeah, well, I think coming off of that first feature, it was really not a calling card because we made it outside of the system entirely. But it uh, was sort of like a throwback film, like a screwball comedy. And uh, and it, it had a studio feel to it. It was a bit glossier than, you know, traditional first features. And so coming off of that, I knew that I now... I approached that film, Posthumous, more like a producer. And then I knew that whatever I did next would probably be seen more as my first feature, that I had to really approach it more as a director, as a writer-director, something that was more specifically in my own voice, that was more personal. And uh, having done a sort of more traditionally structured uh, first film with The Farewell, I knew the risks that I needed to take artistically in order to really put my own stamp on it. And so having not made Posthumous, I don't know that I would have had all of those realizations. Mm. So I think, you know, having, so that's also why when I started pitching The Farewell, people said, well, it would make a great broad comedy. And I said, well, I've already done that or, or, or a rom-com. And I said, right. you know, I've already done that film. That's not my voice. And I know that for sure. And my first film didn't go anywhere. It didn't do anything. And I said, this is going to be different. This is, I want it to be an American independent film. I want it to be very atmospheric. I don't want any of the laughs to be broad. And so that was a harder film to make stylistically. And then also, you know, I insisted on having it be cast authentically as far as like the amount of English that the different characters in the family spoke. (laughs) So, But how how often were people asking you, like, can we make them Dutch or something? Yeah, people were asking to like make them white and put them in America. And then it was like, no, I don't, they have to, the whole premise kind of exists because they're Chinese and because it's a cultural situation. (laughs) And then I think that one producer that I pitched to had suggested that I just put them in Chinatown and not actually in China. So yeah, all kinds of ideas. But I think the, the biggest one that like, I had to fight was this idea that Billy should be the bride. Like if you're going to make a wedding movie, Mm. then your main protagonist needs to obviously be one of the people getting married. But I always thought part of the humor of the situation in real life, as well as the pathos, is was the fact that I was single and my grandma's dying and that she may not get to ever see my wedding. And it was also really funny that this is a supposedly a wedding movie, a wedding, you know, situation, but everybody kept forgetting about the bride and groom that they were actually in the background. And so to me, that was the comic relief was actually like, even talking to my DP, there are scenes where we decided intentionally we would not shoot the bride and groom at all. Everybody else was getting coverage. And then there was only one shot of the bride and groom, which is that, you know, like halfway through the scene, Nine Eyes like, everyone's so excited to see me. And I know everyone's like overwhelmed right. with excitement, <laughs> but don't forget while we're actually here, right, exactly. the wedding. And then you like cut to like, you almost right. make the audience forget about them too. And then well, no, I mean, <laughs> you like, definitely oh, yeah. have, because I remember that moment of being like, Oh, right. They're all technically here for a wedding. They're not here. because." Right. <laughs> well, and then there's also the great scene where they're doing all of the wedding photos and Billy and I and I are in the foreground and those sort of wedding photos are in the background. And it feels like you just externalize that onto the screen. It's like, Oh yeah, the wedding is not the point here. The point here is the relationship between this woman and her grandmother. Exactly. And yet they, it's like this constant, back and forth of foregrounding and backgrounding, right? Like, oh, right, we have to foreground this thing. But then like slowly, slowly they would forget. And then they're like, oh, yeah, right, the bride and group. Oh, yeah, the wedding. And so that was like a a big part of the conceit. And it just felt like I tried to write that other version of the script because I think, you know, as an independent filmmaker, you get really desperate and you're just like, well, if it means that I can at least make my next movie, um, uh, then I'll do anything. But I do think, again, having done Posthumous, that I was like, and we can talk more about that, but it was sort of an existential crisis that I had around The Farewell and, and making it in my own voice and really being adamant about holding on to 
the whole point of it. And so, but I tried to write that other version. It just didn't, it didn't go well. Feels like to me, it appears in the farewell. I mean, like how, like how long were you trying to get the movie made and how much of the like applying for the Guggenheim, not getting it. Like you get the sense that Billy as an artist is like, knows who she wants to be as an artist, but like can't quite break through despite having figured that out. And I wonder like how much of that is like a direct reflection of the experience of trying to make the movie The Farewell. Oh, 100% of that. I mean, not even just The Farewell, even before that. Just the my entire career, I think, was uh, two challenges. One is like, how do you get the external validation? Like, how do you get into programs? How do you get into labs where you're sort of being deemed worthy, like your work is important and worthwhile to be financed. But then there's this other like internal struggle of where you can't even blame the outside world. You're just like, well, maybe I haven't found my voice, you know, and everyone keeps saying like, you have to keep finding your voice. But like, how do you do that? Like, what's the literal process? Like, what do you, you wake up and you, hello, voice, where are you? What are, you know, like, how do you, How do you find your voice? And then when you're a young person, like, and you're just struggling in your career and you don't, but you don't want to be writing about like living in LA, trying to make it in the movie business, right? Like, so what is your voice then? So that was a big challenge for a really long time until I made the farewell. And I think doing This American Life really helped me to better understand what my voice was. I think you're speaking to a really universal truth, particularly for female filmmakers who often have a really hard time jumping from the first feature to the second feature. I mean, a lot of the data out of USC tells us that. How did you sort of maintain resilience during that period when you're pitching the farewell and you're running up against all these brick walls or these just, frankly, bad suggestions for what the movie should be? How did you sort of, you know, keep your head above water during that time and continue fighting for telling the story of The Farewell the way you thought it needed to be told? Uh, Well, I tried to write other projects in between. The agent I had at the time said, you know, don't make this little film about your family. Like, you've already made one feature. Make something bigger. And so I was trying to write some quote-unquote bigger films, which I never understood that either when people define something as like studio versus indie. It's like, that's just a financing, right? Like, you know, that's not a genre. And I think that my gut told me that I had to go smaller, that I had to go closer to the things that I knew really well, rather than going broad, trying to make a big film, trying to make a story about something like a thriller or something about a world that I actually didn't know that well, where that would require a lot of resource, uh, a lot of research. I should do something that I actually knew really, really well. And it's one of the reasons why I went and I made a short film. So after posthumous, I went into Film Independence Project Involve, which I had gotten into the year before, but I had deferred. And then I came back and said, all right, you know what, let me do this program because at least they're going to give me a little bit of money to make a short film. And I never went to film school. So I think any opportunity to make anything is really important. And so even though it was very, very, very little money, I think they gave us five grand and then we raised through Kickstarter another four. So the whole film was made for $9,000. You know, so going from a, a pretty big feature, going back to that was very humbling, but it allowed me to kind of say, well, can I make films regardless of the budget? Can I find a way to tell stories? And what are the stories that I'm interested in? So I made this short film called Touch. And then I was on the festival circuit with Touch at the same time as Posthumous and actually got more exposure from my short film. And that's how I met the producer, Neil Drumming, who ultimately did the segment for This American Life because he was at this New York film festival and saw Touch and we started talking afterwards. So I think like, you know, in terms of just like how to get through all of it. It was difficult, but I just tried to do anything. Like I still woke up every day and and was writing. And I was also listening to a lot of podcasts at the time, interestingly enough. And I really loved things like Mortified even, you know, or The Moth. 
I was really connecting to these stories that were not necessarily like big and cinema, but it was like, here's a person telling a story and I can't stop listening. And so it was, I had already started thinking that way of like, you know, if I can't be a filmmaker, it's a storytelling that I'm really drawn to. So no matter what, I want to continue to find ways to tell stories. So we have five rapid fire questions and then one sort of more general question and then we'll wrap up. So What's a movie that you think that everyone thinks is terrible that you'll defend forever? These are the fun things. These are the less introspective ones. I know, but I'm terrible at this, frankly. I have no, I, I, I don't I, my buy brain this. is mush. No, I really, I have no, like, um, I'm the worst at like lists of like. What's your, what's your favorite bad movie? That's another way to ask it. Like, what's your guilty pleasure? Well, I just watched Tremors. And I love there, that's a great that's a great answer. Perfect. That's what we're looking really? for. Wait, yeah, but does anyone is... think Tremors is bad? That was Tremors that is not wildly bad, successful. Though. Yeah, it's great. That's what I'm saying. It's wow, great. Okay. I, and never it mind. still holds up. It I'm still with you, holds Lulu. up so yeah, well. Those monster I... effects are incredible. They look so good. And it's so earnest. I'm gonna leave you guys to keep talking about Tremors while I check the Rotten <laughs> Tomato score. <laughs> So sing his praises and we'll see how we'll see what the critics thought. I wanted Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward to make like 10 movies together. I would have watched like 10 of those buddy movies with the two of them. Just like oh, I, stand, yeah. I stand corrected, by the way. Trimmers is an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. Because it's that's great. good. <laughs> yeah. That's very that's very good. Yeah. Even the sequels are not bad, apparently. Have you guys seen the sequels? Tremors I've 2? I've seen Tremors 2, which is pretty good. Aftershocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and Tremors 3 back to perfection. They pivot to the Michael Gross character as the protagonist at some point, which is a big shift. I've heard that they're trying to make Tremors 4. There we go. The next Lulu Wong uh Kind of the flip side of that question, is there a movie that you put off watching for a really long time and then when you finally saw it, you were like, oh my God, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me? Yes, but I can. I I can never think of these things. I'm so bad at them. Um... Mm, what have I put off? I, the, the other, you know, the other reason is I haven't seen much in the last two years, but you know, yeah, between making the farewell <laughs> and then, you know, being on the circuit for it. Exactly. So I'm trying to like rack my brain for like what I have even seen recently. Um, it's okay. We can move on. We'll, we'll spare you. If you don't have an answer, you don't have an answer. It's all good. How about this? Okay. Uh, favorite movie about love, favorite movie about war. Like you want like a serious no. answer for the truest the, answer. The, the, the truest answer, the realest answer. Favorite movie about love. I don't, I wouldn't say this is like the best movie about love, but but the movie that made me want to make films was um, Secretary, and I think it's like a wildly wildly romantic movie. There we go. Favorite movie about war. I don't like war movies, so I think it would have to be a war movie that was like. War is bad. Is does atonement count? Atonement yeah. definitely counts. As a war that is a hundred percent a war movie. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's a beautiful movie. There we go. I need to see that again. It's been years. What a tracking shot that is. That that is a hell of a tracking shot. And Saving Private Ryan. I mean, I haven't seen that in a long time, but I remember thinking that it was really well done. I have not seen that since I saw it in the theater actually when it came out now that I think about it it was like I was living in New York that summer and there were like signs I remember I just remember there being signs at the movie theaters that were basically like if you walk out within the first five minutes you're not getting a refund like that was the like the big concern wait do you know what though I actually think the best war movies to me are like not like earthling wars but like Independence Day, that's kind of like a war that's movie. That's a great answer. Right? I mean, like war against the, like the ways in which yeah. we bond as humans. I think that though, that's that's great. We could use some of that Independence Day spirit right about now. <laughs> I mean, ain't that, ain't that the truth? <laughs> we love to talk to folks about sort of early film images that have stayed with them for a really long time, sort of whether that's a particular cut or a still frame or a particular camera move. What kind of sticks in your brain? What kind of images have stuck in your brain longer than others when it comes to thinking about like your life in movies? Well, like what's the one image? What's what kind of images or what's the one image? Yeah, what's the one image? But we we've had folks kind of talk about, you know, a cut or anything in that vein. I'll give you two. One is the tracking shot in 400 blows. Hmm. 
and then another one is the uh, last shot, uh, uh, Julieta Messina's face in Knights of Kiberia. Ooh, great picture. Yeah, that I I wrote about. Well, I wrote about it for Criterion because I feel like that ending has really influenced the tone of everything that I make, which is that bittersweet quality of both pain and grief, but also hope. And, you know, and it's like the way that she's crying and you see the single tear (laughs) and her mascara is coming down her face. You see the tear, but then she looks up at the camera and breaks the fourth wall and smiles, even though she has no reason to smile. But it's, you know, you, you sense that there's hope for this character. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist-approved, so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. So, and then the last, well, the second to last question What is the one movie you get to decide on a movie that everyone on earth gets to watch simulcast, you know, adjusting for time zones and such? What what is the one movie you're forcing everyone to watch for the benefit of humanity? Oh God! Well, I, I was gonna say cats, but then you said for the benefit of humanity. I, no, like, no, 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 no! I can't. I can't. I think there's an I think there's an argument, especially at this moment, that what the world needs now is a screening of cats. I feel like if we all took two hours to just enjoy it, we it would probably like the world would be a better place. I'm not say, unconvinced that that's true. <laughs> I was unable to watch a movie in its entirety for about two weeks. And then last Friday, I watched Cats and it cured me of my inability to watch movies because you have to see it. You're so right. <laughs> it's just fun. You know, I saw it at um, one of those rowdy screenings, a rowdy cat screenings at uh, Alamo Draft House, and just had the best time. We had like a private screening where we could like invite all our friends and stuff. And yeah. everybody agreed that everybody, the people, even the people who were like, really cynical about it coming in just said it was a really fun experience so because there's nothing there's nothing quite like an experience where everyone is on the same page the movie doesn't even have to be good it's just that like we're all as human beings coming together to sit in a room and like experience joy on some level like we're gonna laugh we're gonna make fun of it and everybody is in the same zone it's just it's a shared joy that I don't know that you can replicate anywhere else exactly and I'm I'm so into earnestness that you know because like everything tries so hard I, I mean not to say that cats didn't try really hard but, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's so much fun to watch something that makes no sense at all and you just keep turning to people being like what was that that didn't make any sense any sense like what were they thinking well, to, this, like, to, to this day one of my favorite movie going experience of all time was going to see snakes on a plane on the on the night it came out and there i don't know that i've ever experienced a moment of cinematic joy as pure as the first time sam jackson says get these motherfucking snakes off this motherfucking plane <laughs> every single person in the theater lost their minds and it was a moment of pure joy and definitely that's something the world needs so i i i endorse cats 
as a worldwide screening. And I'm sure that Universal be, does as well. Yes, absolutely. Otherwise, I would also say Independence Day because, you know, we really do need to come together. And that is True. such a great movie. And I think we're actually going to watch it. We've been talking about it a lot. So I think we're going to watch that's, it. That's a really good call. I'm actually Your cinema. I mean, it feels like we're due for a sequel to that. I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if coming out of this moment, people were like, you know what? What are we at now? Would we be ID? They made sequels, right? No. They've made a lot. I, no, they haven't. Were they direct-to-video sequels? One sequel? I, they one, made one, one sequel. sequel. Right, right, right. Two, so we're due for Independence Day 3. Okay. Unavailable. I feel like it could work. <laughs> Independence yeah. Day, Fast and Furious franchise crossover. There we go. Speaking of rowdy screenings, we're going to wrap on a really fun note. Yeah. What is your ideal movie-watching situation? And we're going to talk about in a theater or in your house. So, like, in a movie theater, where are you sitting? Where are your snacks? And at home, like, what's the vibe like? Definitely in a movie theater. My, I, You're saying pick one, like, home or movie theater? No, you talk or, about or both. Or just both, yeah. either one. Oh, okay. I like to go to the movie theater by myself. So if um, for the my ideal theater viewing experience, it would have to be a matinee by myself in an empty theater or like near empty. Maybe there's like a couple other people, but they're all very respectful. Um, <laughs> everybody's, so, everybody's adequately social distance. It's good. <laughs> exactly. A hot dog, popcorn, uh, Coke. And maybe some sour, those sour worms. What else? Oh, I like to sit a little bit off centered. So not too close, not too far and not directly centered. I think it's a better viewing to be a little bit, just a little bit like two seats over. I was going to say, you're going left or right. So to the right. I tend to go, I think it depends on the theater, but I don't know why in my head I'm thinking a little bit to the right. But uh, yeah, I, I think you get better sound. I don't know. That's just my habit. But yeah, there's really nothing like going to the theater by yourself and just being fully immersed in that experience. Um, And when I first started falling in love with films during college and wanting to be a filmmaker, I would do that a lot in a city. So uh, and then at home, I like to be cuddled up uh, on the couch and, uh, you know, with a bottle of wine, probably. And yeah, I mean, I, I at home, I like watching movies with friends, uh, with Barry, whatever, but at the theater, definitely by myself. Actually, we're going to ask one more question. So you and I had this uh, amazing experience at Auburn, a restaurant here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. uh, where you basically said, hey, everybody, come to this restaurant and I'll make you a drink and you can ask me a question, <laughs> which is, I've never seen anything like it. And I had the, the pleasure of being your bar back. Where did that come from? And you very clearly, you place a priority on community, but I also get the sense that it's uncomfortable for you. Like, like you need a sort of structure around it. And, and it's something that I sympathize with. I'm just like, where did that come from? And how do you think about building community in, a, in an industry that doesn't typically prioritize that in the way that you seem to? Yeah, it's interesting that you noticed that because I... I uh, had a really hard time with, you know, promoting the film for a year. Well, first of all, just because I did it for so long because we premiered at Sundance. I mean, yeah, and then, <laughs> yeah, and then the entirety of award season uh, was a whole nother thing. But this idea came about because my brother, Anthony, is the sous chef at Auburn and mentioned that people think of it as this fancy restaurant and think of it as fine dining and they don't really hang out at the bar. But it's actually a really beautiful bar. It's a space that is built for people to hang around in. So I said, well, and and also financially, it's great for the restaurant because that's where they make their most the most of their money is um, through drinks. So I said, well, you know, if you want me to help, I can maybe just like tweet about it. And I bet if I was, if I said I'm going to be there on a certain day, people would like maybe a few more people would show up. I said, but I don't really want to be like at the bar for hours and hours talking to a million people because that just sounds like what I did for the whole last year (laughs) um, while promoting the film. But I do want to bring people together and it's uh, cool. So I said, okay, but what if I bartend? And that way, you know, I'm I'm doing something, but, and people can talk to me, but there's some parameters. They can only ask me one question and one person doesn't hoard the entire time. So that's kind of how it started. And also I, I've always loved the idea of bartending or working at a coffee shop. In college, I worked at a coffee shop and really, really enjoyed that. So that's where the idea came from, I guess. And I just thought it would be a nice way also for people to see a director that's more accessible because when 
you know, I was trying to become a filmmaker. Um, I think one of the reasons it took me so long to recognize that I could be a filmmaker is that directors felt so inaccessible and they're put on this pedestal and especially anything in Hollywood, everything is about celebrity. And, you know, the, the, it's very American to this, like the lone auteur who does everything themselves and is isolated from the public. So I, I think that this was a way to just show people that we're just normal people. We're just storytellers. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the thing that was so amazing to me, you know, because there wasn't much bar backing for me to do. I was basically making sure people didn't ask follow-up questions and sort of, you know, distracting them with, with less sterling conversation while they were waiting for you. But it was fascinating watching them watch you because you did get this. It was just like, wait a minute, this woman who directed a movie that I love is making me a drink. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> like, and, and, and there were multiple times when I caught people like literally like poking each other, like, oh my God, this is so wild. Like, she's making us a drink. And then we get to ask her a question. And I just wonder, I mean, and look, you, you and Barry have started doing this stuff on Instagram Live. Like, beyond the, like, what do you get from it? Like, yes, certainly it, it is, it is a good and valuable thing that other people realize that you were once them. But I, I get the distinct sense that, that you get something from it personally. And I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah. I mean, I love concerts, right? I love like, I love the moth because you can sit in a theater and listen to somebody tell a story. You know, there's something that the reason I became a storyteller, I became a filmmaker is because I believe in the tradition of storytelling. Um, I think that it's really important. And the most direct way of doing what we do is actually just like sit around a campfire and tell stories. Like that's what our ancestors did. And I think that there's a disconnect now, uh, especially in filmmaking, because you make the thing and you spend however long, like years and years doing it. But by the time it screens in a theater and people see it, you've moved on to another project. Um, so you don't really feel the energy, the way that in a room, the way that like a musician doing a concert or a stand-up comedian can really feel the, have that direct relationship with your audience. And so that's the part that I do appreciate with releasing the film. And one of the reasons I went with A24 was when they pitched us about the distribution plan, they were like, you know, with a small film like this, you need to connect with the audience in a really grassroots way you know, we're going to put you in Asian American communities, we're going to put you in colleges where you're going to you're going to go from city to city and do Q&As. And I really enjoy that because that's why I, I, I want to know the reaction, you know, and not through a computer screen, not just reading the review of somebody who I've never met, but I want to feel the room. And it's why I love the theater experience, being able to sit in a theater, watching the film with an audience and, you know, feel the energy and hear them laugh or hear them cry. I think that's the greatest blessing that any filmmaker can get from the audience. So I guess that this is an extension of that, you know, of just like saying, hey, we're storytellers, we're part of the community. And, and I, I don't know, feel more connected that way. It makes you feel more human, I think, because otherwise, like, all of this stuff can just feel really cold. And that is the perfect way to end. <laughs> Thank you. Be well. Enjoy the TV show. Thanks so much, Lulu. Thank you. From Luminary, the Blacklist podcast is a production of The Blacklist and Ninth Planet Audio. Our executive producers are Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagan, Hans Zani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer. Nicholas Pertel composed our theme music. And this episode was edited and mixed by Kevin Liu. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at ThatHaganGirl, T-H-A-T-H-A-G-E-N-G-R-R-L. You can find Franklin on Twitter at Franklin Leonard and on Instagram at Franklin J. Leonard. And you can find The Blacklist on both Twitter and Instagram at The Blacklist, T-H-E-B-L-C-K-L-S-T.